This is IVP. Have you heard about the new monthly book club from InterVarsity Press? IVP Book Drop is the perfect club for readers who want to grow spiritually, hear from diverse voices, and start powerful conversations on today's most important cultural topics. Plus, it's only $9.99 each month. When you join IVP Book Drop, you'll receive our best-selling title, Reading While Black by Issa Macaulay, as your very first book. And after that, you'll continue to receive one curated book a month for just $9.99. As a listener of the Disruptors podcast, you already know many of the diverse authors featured like Issa Macaulay, and you'll meet even more authors like them each month. IVP Book Drop is the easiest and most affordable way to receive the latest IVP books from your favorite authors. To learn more and join today for only $9.99, visit ivpress.com slash disrupt22. That's ivpress.com slash d-i-s-r-u-p-t-22. Save big on books worth talking about by signing up for IVP Book Drop today. Dr. Jamar Chisby, historian, speaker, and author of The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism, including a new young adult version. I am so excited to be talking to him as I've been following his work and being inspired by it in my own journey. So welcome. I am thrilled to be back and, and so honored to interact with you. Thank you for having me. first guest that I've interviewed that Esau also has interviewed, uh, my esteemed predecessor host, uh, Esau Macaulay, and you had an excellent conversation. It was about theology, what it means to be a black Christian. I especially was taken by how the two of you talked about how to be a black Christian in a predominantly white space. Right. And you mentioned especially one either burns out, sells out, or gets pushed out. <laughs> and all three of those scenarios resonated with me as an Asian American Christian in my previous white uh, evangelical Christian institution. So. Wow. Say a little bit more about about that. I mean, is that something from personal experience? So I think many people of color who have been in these predominantly white, particularly Christian and evangelical spaces, know it's really, really hard, at least if you want to speak up about racism and kind of move the needle on those topics. So what I've observed through personal experience, as well as seeing others, is in those contexts, typically, if if you keep raising these issues, uh, one of three things, or as you said, all three things could happen. You either get pushed out, burnout, or sell out. So the sellout part is kind of like you sort of you throw your hands up and you say it is what it is i'm just going to keep my head down and, and not worry about it or you you actually adopt the ideology that is so oppressive and unhelpful um you get pushed out meaning uh you're the squeaky wheel and they get sick of it and they find a way to make sure you exit uh whether that is you voluntarily stepping down because conditions have become so untenable and unbearable, or they sort of give you an ultimatum or make it very clear that, you know, you're, you're, you're not welcome here, or at least you won't advance much or change much here. Um, or you get burnt out, which I think a lot of people are feeling right now, uh, that you, you don't give up. You're there for your constituents in the cases of colleges and universities. You're there for the students, the other faculty members, and 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 you want to make the environment better. But it is so hard. Two steps forward, one step back. Um, administrators or alumni or trustees not supporting you. Um, the, the slightest gesture at racial progress getting so much pushback. And over time, you just 
you you get so stressed out. There's physiological manifestations. You can't sleep. You're not eating well. You you don't exercise. Um, and then and then the spiritual aspect of it, where you get so soul weary, and um, it really leads to really really bad outcomes in a number of areas. But that's what we're up against. Oh my goodness! I'm just reminded of when I decided to. Uh, say yes to Ivy Press to host this podcast. And I was still at my previous uh, conservative Christian institution and I couldn't sleep. Like you said, mm. I had nightmares. I literally actually had to have a God moment where I had mm. God speaking to me and telling me I was going to be fine for wow. me to stop worrying because I can't be on a podcast and not be myself. Right. And so I had this tension. If I'm going to speak truth about racism, I am going to get in huge trouble with yeah. my institution or at least get pushback. Right? right. That was the just the like you said, the, the kind of burnout, the the constant um, either ignoring or actually, you know, uh, saying that I'm doing something wrong. And that right. was essentially what had happened eventually. Mm. But I think uh, I think that was part of my journey. And then the sellout, the sellout is complex because I definitely feel like I can't say that I didn't compromise or kept my mouth shut in certain situations where I'm like picking my battles. But the sellout thing is also when you realize that other co-ethnics or other people of color are sellouts around you mm. and they're not your allies right. in situations. So, so if I'm speaking up, like there were so many like, okay, faculty of color groups or, or I think there was an Asian American event that I was in with all Asian Americans and I wanted to do something for the students. And instead of getting support, people were like, but what are the, what is the establishment going to think wow. about that? Wow. And they basically were this mob and came after me. Goodness. And that was actually one of the reasons why I thought, well, I can't even help others like myself because they don't want to be helped because essentially they're selling out to survive, right? That's right. That's right. Harriet Tubman, there's a quote attributed to her that goes something like, you know, I freed a uh, hundred slaves and I would have freed a hundred more if they knew they were slaves. Um, mm. That kind of gets to it. I, th I think, again, let's be gracious to ourselves. Like we're in environments and institutions where we have to survive. Uh, we have to get a paycheck. We have to have some productive work to do. And we can't fight all the battles all the time. So mm -hmm. some compromise, some choosing your battle. That's, that's, that goes with the territory in any case, right? Mm -hmm. But it also gets to a point, or maybe you're even entering at this point, where maybe you aren't that far in, in sort of your racial identity development, which is something I talk about in How to Fight Racism, mm -hmm. um, that y y you're not quite aware of these dynamics in, in particular ways. And there are a lot of people, even adults, who are in the phase of basically saying, you go along to get along, that I will minimize my racial, my ethnic, my cultural identity and sort of assimilate into this broader culture. And that's going to help me get ahead. That's going to help me fit in and make friends. That's going to help me uh, have professional success, all of those things, which is, again, a survival mechanism. But it's also uninformed. And sometimes um, it's, it's, it's fear-based, uh, the fear of if I do embrace this aspect of how God made me and who I am, how might it disrupt, <laughs> as we're on the Disruptors mm -hmm. podcast, right? How might it disrupt the status quo and what might that mean for me? So I understand it, but it is also, to your point, extremely frustrating with when people who inhabit that experience aren't allies with you in uh, pushing back against a uh, an unjust status quo. Yeah, and the disruption is coming at a huge cost if people have friendship circles or even family circles where, um, you know, if they're in a whatever friend, you know, family that's that's multiracial or even adopted situations where they actually will be coming head to head with people that they love. Exactly. And and so embracing that aspect of you means having to fight those who you are the closest to and. Mm. And I feel like I feel like, you know, I my, my circle of trust at the institution shrank over the years mm. where, you know, where I, I think for my final kind of goodbye, I was like, I only have a handful of people yeah. that I want to. Yeah. I, well, my my criteria of choosing people to be with was do what can I be absolutely myself with them? Yes. 
and that became like five or six people or something. Our, so. our stories are so similar. It's actually refreshing uh, for me to hear that uh, because over time, because of the betrayals, because of the hurt, um, I have had to be much more selective and uh, about my friends and, and who I let get really close. And, and there's a certain grief that goes along with that because I think there was an innocence yes. there. Um, and, and there's certainly relationships that I wish I still had, but know that I can't because they're not healthy. And so sometimes I'm wondering, am I being <laughs> too defensive, too critical? And I'm sure there, 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 there is that to a, to a certain degree, but it, it comes with the territory. You can't be vulnerable with everyone, especially as you try to speak up for justice. But I mean, to your point about relationships, potentially jeopardizing relationships for your stand for truth, I'm just reminded of the passage where, um, you know, people come to Jesus as your family's looking for you. And Jesus said, who's my family? Who are my father? Who's my mother and my mm -hmm. sister and my brothers? And it's mm -hmm. anyone who does the will of God. And to me, that is a an oasis in a sort of social desert um, mm -hmm. that our families, even our biological families, we, we might be estranged from if they're holding on to really unhealthy beliefs about truth, about people, about race. But what God does is says, you're, you're knit into a new family of faith, and that your family, your deepest family, is your spiritual family, the ones who do the will of God. And unfortunately, what, what we're seeing right now are a lot of people who said they were part of the spiritual family of God, but aren't really doing the will of God in the area of race and racism. And so then there's this separation that has to come, this distancing but also the note of hope that there are people out there who are dedicated to this. And they may not be related to you biologically, but they can be our family. So I hope that for everyone who's listening. That's encouraging, especially if we believe that the church is a real entity and that we can find other people who, I mean, and it doesn't have to be even other Christians, right, that you can feel safe with. I definitely have sociology friends who aren't um, believers, but you know, we get each other <laughs> in other ways and they respect my faith. Right. Absolutely. And, um, and, and even I think reflect a lot of the, the same characteristics of kindness and empathy and, and care and, and yeah, and justice, you know, yeah. wanting to see justice in the world. So, um, I want to talk about your open letter. I just, uh, I read it when it first came out and thought, oh my gosh, this is such truth. And then I listened to it. I didn't realize it was an audio and I listened to it and I thought, this is like church. This mm. is like Sunday, Sunday wisdom. <laughs> so, um, so on May 18th, uh, you're welcome. My, thank you for, for writing it and sharing it. So this was released May 18th of just this year, right? Mm -hmm. You wrote an open letter to the board of trustees at Grove City College, which I looked up. They are a self-described conservative Christian college because even my previous institution, I don't think uses the word conservative. And you talk about that in the letter about yeah. how they kind of insert that intentionally. Um, can you say a little bit more about that letter? So uh, Grove City College, it was a whole saga. Um, <laughs> someone in their diversity department invited me to speak all the way back in October of 2020. These, this is a very fraught time. It's literally weeks before the 2020 election, which the former president would later claim was stolen. Uh, this is Western Pennsylvania. It's heavy Trump country. Um, I, I fly in, I believe, to Pittsburgh and I drive to the campus and I'm seeing sign after sign after sign. And I'm starting to get a sense of, of what the context is like, but I get to campus and generally I have good experiences, uh, particularly with students and faculty. This was a little more tense than usual and there was some pushback when students were doing Q&A and whatnot, but you know, nothing terribly dramatic. I preached at chapel. It was on justice. It was Esther for such a time as this. It wasn't particularly forceful, but in that context, it was probably new and, and pretty jarring to people. Um, went, came back, you know, praise God, thought nothing else of it and moved on. A year later, <laughs> a year later, there was a petition uh, called Save GCC from CRT. Save Grove City College from Critical Race Theory. And in it, they um, 
said that Grove City College was drifting from its gospel mission because of the infiltration of ideas like critical race theory. And then they cited me and my chapel message as as evidence of that. Well, longer story short-ish, um, they formed a subcommittee on the board of trustees to investigate these charges of mission drift. They came up with a report that said it was, quote, a mistake to invite me to speak at chapel. Um, that report was officially accepted and adopted by the full board of trustees without any revisions. So now it is on official record at the board of trustees level that it was a mistake to invite me. So that's why I spoke up and wrote this letter. I don't typically do that. Everywhere I go on Christian colleges and, and, and um, campuses, there's some pushback, but it's usually an individual or a small group. This rose to an official statement by the college's leaders. So I felt compelled to respond. And I wrote this open letter, um, partly because we have to tell our stories, y'all. For a long, long time, I did not speak about the racist experiences I had among Christians and in those institutions, whether it was church, seminary, or in this case, a, a college. Be, out of respect for those institutions, out of respect for the household of God, and I didn't want to sort of um, be uh, appear as uh, gossiping or uh, drawing attention to myself or anything like that. But what I realized over time is if we don't tell our stories, then they can continue their really unhealthy, traumatic, abusive behavior in some cases. Um, the, the malpractice is allowed to continue. The other thing I realized is my silence could convey to other people of color that these institutions were safe because they didn't know. I didn't say anything. So they, they don't know any uh, anything different other than what the brochure says or the website says, right? So I, I, I began speaking up publicly about these things and writing things like this open letter um, to A, hold the institution accountable not because I hate it, but because I want it to be better. And two, so that other people of color don't have to find out the hard way like so many of us do. Yeah, a lot of my colleagues of color and white women left the university this year. And almost all of us left for very similar reasons that you experience so much racism and, and you know, kind of both personal and public um push back in very painful ways, but they can't say anything because they don't want to burn those bridges. And I think that it's so important for someone like you, you know, who's not beholden to Christian higher ed to be able to shine a light on that because there is so much fear, right? And I also, because I've exited, um, the, I've actually exited academia altogether mm. because um, not, not because I necessarily hated academia, but I just could not, you know, I could not survive in an institution where I couldn't be myself. And also I felt like morally was like, you, you talked about mission drift and mm. that's their words, right? Mm. Like, what is their mission? Right. <laughs> if right. If fighting justice is a drift from right. their mission, what they're, are they just admitting that their mission is white Christian nationalism? I mean, that is essentially their mission. Right. And so <laughs> the drift part, I just don't get it why is fighting racism or, or not even fighting we're just it's not even like i don't think we're very <laughs> violent in right. our rhetoric it is literally just like hey there's so much pain and there's so much um injustice that's happening it's just naming the issue you got is somehow a, yeah. a drift from their mission that just um that makes me so upset because mm. why did i even like buy into a faith that would that, I mean, are we talking about the same faith here? Exactly. Right? I don't think we are. Exactly. And and that is what is most pernicious, I believe, about white Christian nationalism is that it is so common that people don't recognize it as something different from the Christianity of Christ, from the religion right. of Jesus, right? Uh, because it is is so baked into the teachings of their churches the books that they read, the pastors they listen to, as well as the institutions. And that's part of the issue. Many of these Christian institutions, whether denominations, colleges, nonprofits, did not have a thought about racial justice or equity at their founding. 
and 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 sometimes to the extent that they did think about race it was it was the exact wrong thing it was segregationist mm-hmm. you know um yeah. and and so you're i mean roots bear fruit and so the founding of these institutions has a lot to do with their approaches to race today such that as you were talking and and absolutely accurate in saying what is the mission if talking about justice is constitutes mission drift what happens is these institutions have created themselves in, as uh, has formed their identities as upholding a status quo which is generally about growth um, people and dollars whether churches or colleges or whatever and um not that they don't do good work obviously there's nuance here but they're not equipped institutionally to take meaningful and effective action around justice without drastic change. Typically, that change it comes at too high a cost for them to want to invest in. Yeah, and what's interesting is I taught at a conservative Christian university in Southern California, mm-hmm. and statistics show that most universities you know are enrolled with students that are within a certain mileage radius right so southern california is a very very non-white community mm-hmm. predominantly you know asian latino latinx um black and not you know predominantly white and certainly the population demographic change is shifting to, I mean, I think California is, is predominantly actually Latino as a state. And so having really no one to actually come to a university that essentially will, um, you know, will not welcome any kind of discussions that is because we can't even name our identity because somehow that's threatening. Right. It isn't just right. like like you mentioned in your letter, like they use CRT as an umbrella term to include you as a historian, naming the historical truths that you spent years, decades researching. They named that as CRT. They named me um, just tweeting about Asians in Hollywood as CRT. <laughs> it's just like a catch all for any. Anytime we even bring up positive like things about our own groups or just saying that I'm Asian American is a threat right. to white Christian nationalism. And so, like you said, it's like, you know, if it's about enrollment, but for my university, my previous institution, it really is no longer even about keeping afloat. It really is. It's like we will die on this mm. quote unquote mission. Mm. Uh, yes, to your point, are, are are we even talking about the same religion? And if one of the things that I try to constantly do is just make people aware, there's other ways to practice Christianity. There's other ways to hold this religion. And in my research, I particularly highlight the black Christian tradition, because in the U.S. context, it is a religious tradition that arose directly to uh, challenge racism and white supremacy. I mean, it's important to note that the black church didn't arise primarily out of any sort of doctrinal disputes about, you know, the place of the Bible or the divinity of Jesus or things like that. It arose because black people were being treated as second-class citizens in the household of God. As a matter of fact, uh, going to church became a, a way of monitoring and supervising and controlling black people. And so it was a very basic desire that said, look, we understand we're made in God's image. We understand we're human and God loves us just like you. We shouldn't be treated like this. And if you won't treat us the way we, we deserve in your space, we have to create our own space. Uh, what we would now start to call building our own tables kind of a thing. But as you look at the black Christian tradition, and as particularly, uh, broadly speaking, teachings about race and racial justice, you find a, a, a very different witness to what it means to follow Jesus, to live the faith, and to work for justice. And, and, and it's way past time that we sit at the p- feet of uh, people of faith and others, uh, as you said, who who have lived at the margins and have experienced oppression and therefore see the world in a different way and learn from them. Yeah, and I think there's a lack of acknowledgement that in these predominantly white, but even the multicultural uh, Christian spaces, that white culture is at play, right? Mm. I think about um, yes. how um, a guest from last season, Jean Luen Yang, who is a um, comic book 
artist and MacArthur Fellow, he mentioned that he thought that Asian American churches were a way to pra- to be able to continue the culture without the suspicion of the white establishment. Wow. Right. And so acknowledging that in every church there is a culture um, and that there's nothing necessarily wrong with, you know, being an Asian Christian, because I think that was a, a critique that, you know, I can't be Asian and Christian at the same time, right. but they're not acknowledging that the Christian that they're defining is white Christian, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the normalization of whiteness, so that it becomes invisible. Um, and so when they say identity politics or victim politics, they're always talking about people of color. But in fact, that is completely at play in white Christian nationalism. They're just not acknowledging it. You bring up such an important point. And, and, and for the listeners who are white, this is a critical understanding that, that race and identity are always at play. White supremacy thrives on invisibility in certain cases. Mm-hmm. And... Here's an example. So uh, Daniel Hill is a white pastor in Chicago, and he wrote the book White Awake. And he talks in the book about how he began to understand his own racial identity as a white man in the U.S. And he said uh, he he officiated the wedding of a friend of his who was, I believe, of um, Southeast Indian descent, in Indian descent. And uh, he went to this wedding, and they were dressed in 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 all their traditional clothing and and music and everything. And uh, Daniel said to his friend, who was the groom, he said, oh, man, this is so cool. I wish I had a culture like you did. To which his friend responds, Daniel, you do have a culture. You just don't see it. And it's white culture. And you don't see it because it's the default. And now, deeper thoughts on whiteness with Nancy Wong Yoon. Today I read from Daniel Hill's book, White Awake, An Honest Look at What It Means to Be White. Chapter 1, The Day I Discovered My World Was White. I had no idea how much was packed into that little statement, but it sure wasn't lost on him. He suddenly got serious, placed his hand on my shoulder, and looked me straight in the eye. Daniel? You may be white, but don't let that lull you into thinking you have no culture. White culture is very real. In fact, when white culture comes into contact with other cultures, it almost always wins. So it would be a really good idea for you to learn about your culture. I found myself revisiting this conversation often. My friend was known for avoiding serious topics, so I had been surprised by the spontaneous intensity he had displayed. Most unsettling about it was his commentary on my quote-unquote white culture. First of all, I felt like he was lumping me in with every other white person he'd ever known. I thought, he can't seriously think there's just one white culture, can he? In an attempt to piece together the confusing message he sent my way, I reflected on the Irish heritage on my father's side and the pride many of my relatives took in it. Then I thought about the German and French heritage on my mom's side. I knew less about those cultures, but still, they were three very different backgrounds. Was he suggesting that those three distinct cultures could be mashed into a single category white? That seemed like a major stretch. Then there was the even more unsettling suggestion that my culture wins whenever it comes in contact with another. Not only was he lumping all white cultures into a single group, He was also proposing that the single conglomeration consistently dominates other cultures. How would this not come off as insulting to a white person? What seemed utterly obvious to him was utterly confusing to me, but I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I searched for where I could find agreement with him. I could readily acknowledge that some white individuals exhibit dominant or even racist behaviors. Certainly that was common ground. But even then, I found myself thinking, just because certain white individuals demonstrate prejudice or racism by their behaviors doesn't implicate an entire race. I guess that he would respond poorly to the suggestion that certain individuals of Indian heritage represent their entire race. Yet he seemed comfortable with the idea of poorly behaved white individuals representing all white people. This monologue continued to live inside my head longer than expected, and I anxiously awaited its end. Instead, it grew in intensity. I wasn't sure why, but it was becoming clear 
that God had provoked something in me through this brief encounter. My friend had opened a monumental door and had left me to decide whether or not to step through it. He had opened me up to a whole new world. That was Deeper Thoughts on Whiteness with Nancy Wong Hyun. And this is how white supremacy manifests itself. We tend to think of that term, white supremacy, Ku Klux Klan, you know, bombings and things like that. Yes, that's part of it. But here's another way it manifests. It says that white is right. White is normal. White is standard. So the example I always give, uh, when I went to seminary, all theology was just theology until it was black theology or Asian American theology. When it's European theology or written by white men, uh, it's standard. So you didn't, you didn't need to label it. Um, and that's the way our entire culture functions. So when we're talking about Asian American churches, black churches, um, not assimilating, what we're talking about is being in environments where we're not always assuming that white is the standard or the default, but that it can be among other races, cultures, and ethnicities. Yeah, the, the, the supremacy is that truth with a capital T and um, whatever, uh, classics or, or whatever. It's the canon, right? The yes, canon is yes. always European, always male. <laughs> and anything else has to have, like you said, the, the kind of descriptor because, and the descriptor makes it less than. Right. Right. Exactly. And this, and, and it, it, and this is all constructed, right, to reinforce the power uh, hierarchy because we don't need to necessarily think of Asian American studies or African American studies or all these other studies or history with the you know with the the same kind of ethnic mm -hmm. descriptor that this is American history. I mean, your whole book, uh, The Color of Compromise, is the founding of this country. The yeah. kind of it, it actually, I think, is describes our country better than any of <laughs> the kind of public school, whatever, you know, founding fathers literature that high schoolers. I mean, actually, like, I think every year we learn in public school, right? Every year we yes. learn about the same founding fathers and George the Revolutionary Washington. War. Yes, yeah, but, but And then slavery is like maybe one month. The, the you know, the Japanese incarceration mm. is one paragraph, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. so all these kind Kind of, are, I, I mean, and they, and this is the CR, anti-CRT movement, right? Is getting the history of vic, of 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 colonization, slavery, enslavement, and racism, getting that out of our schools. That is yes. what. That's not CRT, as you've mentioned in your open letter. We we know as people who uh, study race and racism, but don't do CRT because we're not legal scholars. I actually. It's so funny because when, when the anti-CRT movement, especially sweeping through Christian institutions, I was like, man, I should have, you know, I was at UCLA with Kimberly Crenshaw and I didn't <laughs> audit any of her classes. I want to know more about CRT. Yeah, when yeah. they're attacking me, I feel like I don't, I don't even do that. Like, how do I need to learn more myself so right. that I can defend it better? And, <laughs> and also I should have learned CRT. It's like, you know, because most sociologists actually don't do CRT mm -hmm. because it's actually, actually sociology, this is like cutting it very slicing it in a way that's uh, you know the the people on the left talk about it uh, sociology is actually not seen as the most radical discipline because mm. we're all about data and you know it's not about uh, you know any kind of opinions it has to be i mean obviously ev everything is you know right. still through a specific perspective but when people you know in christian institutions label me as a radical i'm like i am not as radical as you think you know <laughs> I mean, I'm just kind of normal sociologist. I mean, I think I've become more radicalized. It's like when you're pushed and right. when you're labeled, you start to investigate things. It's like I I think about, okay, why did God have me go to a conservative Christian institution? Hmm. Hmm. And I think I wouldn't have investigated the intersection of white supremacy and evangelicalism the way that I did unless I was at an institution that pretty much told me what I wasn't. Yeah, You know, people telling me I'm not Christian. And then me having to investigate, why are you saying that? <laughs> you right. know, why are you labeling that? And I think that if I were just at, you know, an average, you know, research institution and just going to church, I don't know if I would have thought about it in in that deep a way because you're not thinking about it when you're just going Sunday. 100%. I think I accepted that. Okay, there's always going to be racist in, in Christian churches, whatever. And I might have just kind of stepped away from the faith altogether, especially post-Trump. But because mm. of the constant 
constant investigation and and meditation and learning about liberation theology mm -hmm. and other ways of thinking about the gospel. I was uh, I'm thankful, I think, uh, that I was able to through the fire, <laughs> yeah. through the persecution, actually come out and feel like, gosh, you know, I I know stuff now and I, I can I can be confident in my faith more confident than if I just was confused why, you know, evangelicalism became the way, the ugly thing that it became. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I will say uh, in college, sociology was one of my favorite classes. Um, I, I feel this kinship and I learned so much from sociologists. Uh, but I, for me, studying history had that similar effect of, yes, of course, um, I, I came to faith in a white evangelical context, which is baffling because even the area where I lived wasn't predominantly white. So um, it's just the way God wove that story. And it was being in that context that sort of forced these questions about race and identity and theology and whatnot. And uh, I too ha have experienced such seasons of frustration and, and, and pain that I don't know where I would have ended up, but I think God also used history to help guide me because history does a couple of things. Number one, it gives an accurate witness. You see, we can say all these beautiful things about what we believe, but it's how we live that truly communicates what we believe about God and other people. It, how we live truly communicates our theology. So I was able to see through history what people, many people in this country really meant when they said Christian or evangelical. And, and it was often wrapped up in ideas of white supremacy and racial superiority and all of those things. But the other thing it did was say, there was another witness. So we often hear um, in, in historical studies, oh, they were, they were men of their times typically speaking of people behaving badly, like slaveholders. Uh, and, and, and it's used, it's weaponized to basically say, well, you can't judge them. You can't cast a moral judgment on what they did. We didn't live when they did. They're men of their time. To which I say, Frederick Douglass was a man of his time. Ida B. Wells was a woman of her time. Uh, people who stood up against racism and white supremacy were people of their time as well. So the reality is uh, we cannot give people a moral pass just because they lived in a different era. Sure, the, the sort of culture might have been different, but, but right within that were people who were pushing back against an unjust status quo. And we have to heed their voices, too. And as a matter of fact, if we learn to do that in, in, in looking at history, perhaps we can learn to do that in looking at the present day as well. Yeah, that's so true. It, that, that pass. Well, I mean, we give passes for so many reasons. Oh, boys will just be boys. Mm. I mean, whatever they were saying when Trump's, you know, tape came out about all those horrible things, you know, misogynistic and really rapey things that he mm -hmm. was saying. Like somehow that got a pass. I mean, everything that he got a pass for and the fact that people, evangelical Christians got behind him. I think that was such a bad witness yes. <laughs> to, to the world. Really, that was probably the worst witness possible. And, you know, people were trying to be, quote unquote, good by not abstaining from voting. Right. Uh -huh. That was a lot of the, the, the white evangelicals were somehow they were morally superior because they were just going to abstain from voting. But I was like, by abstaining, you're you're still like when you do nothing, that is still doing something. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. anyhow, so it's just the and the fact that I think that really emboldened a lot of people to tell lies about Christianity and Christian faith um, wrapped up in that that politicization. And I think. You know, I know so many people who walked away from the faith and at least walked away from evangelicalism mm -hmm. since then. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of the listeners of um, the disruptors are part of that camp or thinking about what does this all mean? And I don't know. You mentioned that we're in the kind of the civil rights movement of our times. Right. That I mean, especially all this kind of pushback on CRT. Right. I just when nobody knows what CRT means, these people, you know, and um, and you're doing a series and it's wonderful but called Those Meddling Kids Unmasking the Anti-CRT Crusade, especially specifically in Christian higher ed. <laughs> um, and and this is your interviewing experts. Say a little more about that. So I was able to do a Zoom call with some students at Grove City, and these these are the students who, who actually want to see racial change and progress, which, by the way, the student body's 
90% white. And then when it comes to faculty and staff, it's like 94% white. Um, uh, so there's a lot of more understanding that needs to happen. Um, and so these students, which was actually a racially and ethnically mixed group, were interested in, in, in finding out ways to keep the momentum because, again, silence supports the status quo. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure what many of the leaders at Grove City wanted to happen was, you know, this, this stuff happened late spring, so let's just get to summer break. And then folks will stop talking about it and we can move on. We didn't want that to happen. We wanted this to 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 to, to force an issue so that they, there, there would be change in progress. And so one of the things we came up with was um, it was originally going to be a teach-in, just a one-day thing. But there was so much to cover that it expanded into a series. And so this series, those meddling kids, is sort of a, that phrase is a play on Scooby-Doo, right? Uh, the cartoons. Where the, key, the the young people um, would would spend the whole episode solving a mystery, and at the end, when they figured it out, they would unmask the villain or the culprit, and, and, and invariably that person would say, and I would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those meddling kids. And that's actually a compliment, right? Mm -hmm. This is about young people who want to agitate for positive change. And so we did this series, talked to all kinds of experts on critical race theory, white Christian nationalism, uh, what I call the uh, anti-CRT industrial complex, talking about, you know, the, the web of money and institutions that supports all this. It really turned out, I'm so pleased with it, um, and the information contained there, I think it's going to be helpful for anyone who wants to understand what the what on earth is going on with how, how did critical race theory become this boogeyman in our culture and what's really behind it. And I'll say this about the critical race theory stuff, which is really, really scary because a couple of things are happening. One, state legislatures are passing laws banning what they call critical race theory, which, as you said, is really um, simply making it harder for us to speak and teach honestly about our racial past and present. And then the second thing that's happening is uh, these far right activists are taking over local school boards local school boards, so, so, such that uh, in, in local communities and local schools, it'll get harder and harder to have access to, to the books and the teachings and, and all of this. And you can just look online. There's these onerous requirements of teachers having to go through literally every single book in their library and make sure it checks these really amorphous, ambiguous boxes of, of not teaching CRT. Uh, I'll say what's behind that, I think, two of the primary drivers behind that are, one, things like critical race theory, and they point to projects like the 1619 Project specifically, which isn't critical race theory either, but doesn't matter to them. But anyway, um, any teaching that disrupts the narrative of this innocent founding of the nation because many people think that America is God's favorite country, the United States is 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 the apple of God's eye, and sure there were some issues around Native Americans and slavery, but you know what? We got over it, and that just shows that can-do American spirit. And the founding fathers weren't thinking about those things; they were thinking about freedom and democracy and liberty. And any teaching that would undermine that is forbidden. That's one thing. The other thing is a misunderstanding of really any sort of racial justice theory today. Uh, the misunderstanding is that some people think these teachings are saying that all white people are inherently racist, literally by virtue of being white or by ver the, the, the amount of melanin they have in their skin. What people are saying, what activists are saying, what theories like critical race theory communicate is that racism and white supremacy is the default and that even apart from your active intention you can passively participate in an unjust system which i don't know if this jives but this is what i think about in the bible in the old testament they had a sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people which says you can be wrong and not even know it so i wonder if there might be a similar application to where you can be participating in an unjust system, a racist system, not be conscious of it, but it's still 
hurting people. It's still violating the image of God in people. And and so what critics of critical race theory think is that that this theory is saying that all white people are just bad because they're white, just racist because they're white. What 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 these theories are saying is that apart from an intentional effort to go against the status quo, uh, part of apart from an intentional effort to be actively anti-racist. Uh, in the in the common terminology today, that you're, you're propping up a status quo that is very harmful. And that's what it's saying. I think they just don't want to accept that the status quo is racist. That's right. That's they right. That's they right. Don't, they don't they don't accept that premise at all. And that is despite the data. Right. This is the whole like truth. <laughs> so ironic that they're after truth, but they will ignore hard data. Um, and that that is actually truth that is collected by social scientists. Right. I've been very hard pressed to continue. I, I realized recently, actually, and I and I hope that you can help me with this, Jamar, because uh, even though I came, I actually came to faith through Asian American Christians, mm. right? And actually, even before then, uh, I've shared this, I think, on previous episodes of The Disruptors. Uh, the first time I, I grew I was born in Taiwan and I came when I was five. I didn't know about God at all. My family is mm. not even agnostic, just a religion, a faith, I guess. No, they didn't think about anything. Mm. And there's no mention of God in Taiwan pop culture because it's not a not that kind of country, right? And so the first time I heard about God was watching Different Strokes, the 1980s wow. sitcom. <laughs> yeah. It was Arnold praying to God <laughs> about heaven, about he was worried that, um, you know, Mr. Drummond was going to die. It was some sort of, you know, hijinks, misunderstanding. But his but the premise of the show is that his parents, you know, died and he's an orphan. Right. Yeah. And so I was really drawn to that. And then when he talked about God and was praying, I was like, and that started me, that jump started my spiritual journey. So it was, wow. you know, a, a black boy <laughs> fictional praying. And then I was in Southern California and I only had Asian American friends. So it was like through all these, like I went to Catholic church with my mm. Filipino friend and it was a Korean Jesus camp where I was saved. <laughs> and so I had a very Asian, non-white uh, Christian experience. But my 14 years at my white Christian <laughs> national institution I have a hard time um, praising God these days mm. because I think I cannot get out of my mind the God that I once, I cannot remember the God I once worshipped. I am brainwashed against my will mm-hmm. <laughs> about the white Christian kind of national, I mean, because there's there was literally like a huge mural in my university of a white Jesus. I like, yes. I can't, for, 14 years had an impact on me because I was so busy resisting Mm. white evangelicalism. I am having a hard time confession of wanting to praise the God of my youth, the Mm. God. It was emotional for me, right? Like the God that I had, I had come to because I was interested in the God of love, but the, the, this 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 horror that has been you know just also coming to realize like you said the disruption of coming to realize that the faith that you once held you know or that you maybe still hold as important and significant but the all the racism and all the homophobia and all the sexism and the misogyny and horrors that have become synonymous with it i cannot be immune to that Mm -hmm. and i'm having a hard time Mm -hmm. i'm having a hard time how do you you know, as someone who's trying to decolonize, who's trying, I mean, what do you do? What do you do when you're coming out of a white situation? That's right. You know, how do yeah. you, how do you start, still love and worship uh, the God of creation? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing so candidly. Uh, I think a lot of people are going through that and I absolutely identify with that. To be honest with you to this day, I have a hard time reading the Bible because all of my Bible study tools, all of my hermeneutical tools came out of these very harmful, racially harmful white contexts. And so I'm, yeah. I don't know if I can trust the way I've been taught to interpret the, the Bible if, it has, if, if those tools have led to all of these bad teachings and abuses and fears, right? Exactly, exactly, yes. So I'm like, I don't. I, I still don't quite know, but, but a couple of things have helped. Um, number one, 
decolonizing, use that word, and I'm glad that you did, because a lot of the conversation now is about, quote unquote, deconstructing the faith. For many of us, especially people of color, it's not about turning our backs on God or, or coming up with a completely different religion. It's about taking away the colonialist, imperialist, racist elements that, that, that we've been taught and, and finding out what's left then. Um, so, so it is a process of decolonizing our faith. How, did that, how does that happen? One, it's never been easier to listen and learn from other Christians. Uh, particularly in the pandemic era, we had to pivot, and we did virtual church and online stuff. You can still do that now. And so how hard would it be uh, on your commute, your run, your whatever, to listen to sermons or Bible studies or teachings from people of color, uh, from communities that you haven't typically listened to? You're going to get a very different tone, a very different expression of the faith, which might be refreshing. Um, Another thing that's helped me is understanding that God speaks through all of creation, uh, and, and without getting into you know sort of all the authority of the Bible and all of those things, all I'm saying is I can learn about God through all of creation. And what's been particularly helpful to me is uh, learning about history and learning about people who lived their lives in terms of a faithful witness, a faithful witness to justice. And seeing, oh, no, there are real people who lived who did this, and they offer me a different example than so many of the, the folks that I see now, uh, especially the ones that make the headlines, unfortunately. Um, the other thing, again, I said this before, is, 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 is giving grace to ourselves um, that we've been hurt, that mm-hmm. what we're experiencing is confusing, that it took time for us to sort of get stuck in this morass. It's going to take time for us to get unstuck. And God's timeline is probably different from yours, <laughs> you know, uh, that, that, that the way God is healing you is going to be a deep, deep healing. Um, it, it is not going to be shallow or surface, but God wants us to go through a process, which is not to excuse the harm that's done, but to say that if it takes time, and it will, that there, that it's going to be a stronger healing than if we could just snap our fingers and have it all figured out. Um, and let's do it together. Like there's, wherever you're listening, you're not the only one who is feeling sort of displaced or in the wilderness, as we often say. Listen to this podcast. Uh, we've addressed similar topics in my podcast, Pass the Mic. Read these authors. Uh, find your um, community, your 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 spiritual family, or or your chosen family, which might be virtual. In some cases, you know, it's it's not ideal, but it's better than nothing. Who would you recommend to listen to in terms of preachers of color who are you know who can actually address some of these very mm-hmm. wide, I think, concerns for you know focus folks that yeah I I agree the deconstruction. Um, I mean, I'm not against deconstruction, uh, but I like decolon. I mean, I mean, I'm always decolonizing, but decolonizing the faith, right? I right. Love that. So, are there are there decolonizing yes. <laughs> pastors that we can listen to? Absolutely. Uh, the ladies of Truth's Table, uh, Akemini Uwan and Christina Edmondson, uh, grab their book, which is astoundingly insightful. Uh, but also their their podcasts, and they're doing like daily Bible reading. So you can, you can get a lot from them. Uh, my co-host on, on my podcast, Tyler Burns, is also a pastor, uh, New Dimensions or um, All Nations Fellowship in, in uh, Pensacola. His sermons are online. He's an incredibly gifted preacher. He'll never admit that, but he can't. It's obvious the moment you hear him. Um, and he's in a black church context and, and just from the topics he chooses to the illustrations he uses, very, very different. Uh, a book that I, I constantly revisit is uh, Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Just a, a beautifully mystic, very spiritual, very soulful, cerebral book, but really getting through the emotions and the heart uh, um, treatment of, of justice from a faith standpoint. And then literally uh, uh, books about people who have lived well, 
So I think of Fannie Lou Hamer. There are a few biographies of her out recently. As much as we mentioned Martin Luther King Jr., who, who's actually sat down and read an actual biography of his life, uh, that'll give you a whole different dimension than the one quote from his I Have a Dream speech. So or all the all the <laughs> quotes that circulate exactly. uh, on Martin Luther King Day from even conservatives who like to cut out all the radical parts of his love ministry. the colorblind, love to <laughs> interpret him as colorblind, which he never was. Oh, yes. Yeah. So those awesome. are some and, and there's other people to learn from like yourself. I'm learning a, a whole bunch from get real inequality. If you haven't yet, what are you waiting for? Um, and then uh, I learned from folks like Bree Newsom, Bernice King, William Barber. Like there's, there's people actively living right now who are trying to set an example. So there's no shortage. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite answers to, to a lot of these questions is just two words long. Google it. I promise you, you'll find something. <laughs> Awesome. Um, so recently, I was on, I'm on this uh, listserv and just, you know, uh, for Netflix multicultural marketing. And they do these uh, previews of like their, their content that's, you know, featuring un historically underrepresented groups. And I was there and then they have a chat box, right, of all the folks that are invited. I was like, Jamar Tisby. Whoa, this is cool. And uh, so what what's going on with you and Netflix and, you know, Hollywood? I love movies, television, entertainment. This is what surprises some people is is like because I do this race stuff all day every day when I actually have leisure time. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I I want to <laughs> escape. I I literally do. I so I watch I watch silly things I, uh, humor is a balm to my soul. God bless the comedians sincerely, deeply from the bottom of my heart. Uh, because if you can make me laugh in this context, in this environment, what we're going through, oh, that's a that's a gift. So so anyway, I I I I love good entertainment, and I'm not I'm not a ver a critic, you know. Like I, I I don't have that lens. I just I'm I'm more of a consumer, and I like what I like, and it may not be sophisticated. It is what it is. But I also love just thinking about it through a faith perspective and even a race perspective. I can't actually completely turn that off. Um, so when I do watch these things, um, I'm very interested in storytelling. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. This is this is this is my big public kind of explanation. I don't think I've done this on a podcast before. And 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 if you like it, I need to trademark it. Don't don't steal it. Um, <laughs> this is what I say. I say every movement has at least three elements: the academy, the assembly, and the arts. Okay, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I haven't completely fleshed this out, but I think I think I think there's something there. So the academy that doesn't just mean like the formal college or university. It means people who give us new knowledge, who give us data and information, oftentimes researchers or scholars or writers, but not always. Uh, there's folk wisdom there that we can learn from. But, but, but the folks who give us the informational and intellectual material we need to understand the, our context. Uh, so in terms of race, these are the folks who are, who are writing about you know, race and all those that kinds of things. We need that. We also need the assembly, by which I mean both faith communities and political processes. So the assembly literally mean where people gather to sort of deliberate and make decisions. Uh, certainly faith communities are a big part of any racial justice movement um, for, for, for good or for ill um, in this mm -hmm. country. And so they have to be part of that conversation if we want to see movement. But also because evangelicalism has confined racism to very individualistic manifestations, we have to have the, the sort of political assembly to, to change systems and laws and policies. To your question, the arts are where I think we have so much more progress to make in terms of our racial justice efforts. Uh, what places like Netflix and, and Hollywood do fundamentally is tell stories. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's so powerful. It gets at us in ways that nothing else can. Um, and so I think what we've learned from the far right is that they have a bad story 
but they tell it really well. They do. They use media really effectively, um, and they get their people information. Well, forces for progress and justice can learn from that and say, how can we tell stories better in multiple media? Uh, whether that's writing, poetry, think about think about the January 6th inauguration, not the insurrection, <laughs> the inauguration, uh, which was later. Um, the most memorable part of that wasn't that Biden won, wasn't that we had our first um, person of color and woman vice president that was incredibly memorable. But what people remember about that day was Amanda Gorman reading a poem. Absolutely. Because there was something about art and creativity and culture making that captures us in a way that nothing else can. And I just think that if we want to have a civil rights movement today and see it make progress, then we need more storytellers. We need more culture creators doing what they do best in all the different ways that this information and digital age has allowed us to do. So that's my interest. No, I, I absolutely agree. That's why I studied Hollywood um, all of my life and or all my adult life. And, and I see it as um, so there's two things I think about it. I think in some ways it's church now for the world because we all share in pop culture in ways that church once functioned. Right. So even if you're not a believer, you can be a believer of, <laughs> or fandom, right, of Star Wars, of whatever it is, uh, Marvel. I mean, Marvel really, I think, mm -hmm. has, has become the dominant, quote unquote, church, secular church for so many people that even if you don't like it, you know about it. Yes, right? absolutely. <laughs> so, because it's a it's a force to be reckoned with. And so I think that at the same time, the arts has been dominated by white supremacy. And this is not because this is exactly what you were saying. You don't have to be conscious of it to do it. Because mm. I think people in Hollywood do not think of themselves as racist. That's been the whole my whole book is about how um, they talk about color. It's it's this, it's a form of colorblind racism because yes. they will say that they are not racist. They will actually say it's kind of like get out where they're like, I would vote for Obama twice if I could. <laughs> exactly. That is all of that is like almost like 99 percent of Hollywood. Right. The the kind of white liberal um, kind of, uh, white liberal industrial complex. If we want to call spill it that the tea, spill of. all the tea. Yes. <laughs> But so the, actually, when I when I wanted to leave my institution, my my literary agent was like, you should write about, you know, your experience there. And I was like, I should compare uh, white Christian nationalism to white Hollywood. Wow. <laughs> because, because I think that there, you know, there are a lot of similarities, a lot of similarities, the kind of denial of the institutional racism, um, the 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 kind of moral, you know, kind of whatever I don't even know storytelling we could call it storytelling right they tell a story of their own morality that does not confess that does not uh, there's no humility in mm. it right there is just kind of a and whether it's um driven by whatever uh I mean all of it is driven by by material capitalism yeah. even let's just let's just admit it the mm. churches are about numbers as well right but um but at least in the church I think the message is more of like gospel or truth or biblical whatever <laughs> mission yeah. mission mm -hmm. right whatever it is uh hollywood it's about okay it's about dollars box office right but all of it are these imagined truths and imagined um like imagined audiences right imagined mm. so the, these i mean it, we, i thought that we were over it i really honestly was naive and thought oh now studios really get it because i've seen so many changes in my lifetime right but hbo just recently you know fired most of its uh executives of color Goodness. and you know and destroyed batgirl right just mm. for for whatever and which starred a black woman as batgirl and so and all of this this kind of and they they're apparently going after quote-unquote middle America this imagined right. white audience because like the Gaineses and discovery because they're part of discovery right that they want these like you know Waco Texas makeovers and <laughs> you know good old-fashioned I don't know what you know Texas <laughs> Texan decor and and storytelling yeah and so I, I had in my book in 2016 my research in the early 2000s kind of 
taken down the idea that middle America isn't what you think it is. And mm. it's just an excuse for mm. Hollywood to continue to say, well, it's the audience. We're just trying to go after that audience. And I think they're they're thinking about the Trump audience, right? They're yes. thinking about things like that. And it's so hypocritical. But that's just like the church is so hypocritical, right? This kind of morality that they... Um, anyway, so I could get on that soapbox. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking about. And so exactly what you're saying about the arts, it's not just kind of like we can inspire, but we really need to combat the mm-hmm. white supremacy mm-hmm. that actually gets distributed to everybody with no filter. Right? Mm. These people are just, like you said, they're just relaxing. At the end of the day, they just want to relax. They're not watching this at, at all with a critical eye. Right. And that's when these messages get implanted in our brains, especially young people. Yes. You know, there's studies that say that like young people of color and all women, like their self-esteem go down with each additional hour of television oh, watched. And the yeah. only group that goes up is white boys. Right? Look at that. Mm. And so psychologically, it's taking a toll. It's a it's a public mental health crisis and a and a societal crisis mm-hmm. in terms of social justice, right? In terms of who we think of as heroes, who we think of as good, and so all I, that. I yes. just have to give you your flowers. This is why I think not just your work, but your your whole sort of embodiment is so important. Uh, first of all, you represent people of faith who aren't scared of the big bad world out there. <laughs> particularly entertainment liberal what what some would call that world right and and so you can maneuver in that world uh faithful to your principles uh but loving toward many 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 different people where and i think that's such an important witness right now because there are still so many folks who are committed to building walls between themselves mm-hmm. and what they they term the world and and it's really scary for them um, the other thing that, that that you live and demonstrate is the um, power and usefulness of uh, scholarship and and disciplined research and study, and how you can bring those tools to bear on uh, present day inequalities and and social issues that can help us move forward. And to me, that was such an inspiring example because in the context where I learned the faith those things weren't promoted. They weren't expressed very often, or at least not very well. And so uh, to hear your deep, deep, deep knowledge of your subject matter, as well as your passion for for people and justice and equity, I just want to say it's awesome to observe. I'm so honored that I just even got to speak with you. I hope we can collaborate. We need to uh, get into some good trouble together. There's got to be a project out there we can figure I out. I want to do creative work. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to do creative work? I want to create the content because you know, it's enough for it's not enough for me to just critique it. I need to create some original content with like, you know, all the I, I think that academics who, you know, who go into Hollywood, they have so much to bring. We we need to that's what we need to do. We need 100%. to go in there and and create content that is informed, right? Yeah. Informed by faith, informed by our scholarship, informed by our knowledge of the of the social justices and the injustices that that need to be reformed and so i think I, it's just it's it's intimidating it's a little intimidating mm-hmm. right because mm-hmm. i think creative work is not how we were trained but Mm-mm. it's like you said i've been i've been i mean i my whole being has been formed mm. by popular culture right my faith <laughs> was introduced god chose <laughs> to reach me <laughs> through an 80s sitcom that one of the very amazing. few very few that featured kids of color because i was looking for them subconsciously right yeah. I'm like looking for the non-white folks right so i mean i loved i love lucy because i was like there's a guy who speaks with an accent who's yes. not you know bad right <laughs> so right. all these things all these things um they they form us they really do form us and i want to help form future generations for good right so i love it i love it yes <laughs> let's do it <laughs> let's do it okay that's that's gonna be the conclusion of the podcast next time you hear from us we're gonna be hollywood executives <laughs> <laughs> you said or it. Or we're gonna be we're gonna be on the red carpet, Netflix red carpet, right? Absolutely. So. <laughs> Let's do it. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs>